I suppose I should say hello to some visitors this morning. Um, the Bevans, John and Cheryl. Bevan, uh, there you go. Uh, they used to be at the Saviour Road Baptist Church many years ago, and I knew them. Uh, John was one of the elders there, I think, long, long, long time ago. He had hair then. He keeps saying that, but Cheryl said, no, he hasn't had hair for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, John and Heather were at Azadia Road Baptist, uh, and Ronnie and Bev know them somehow. Work, 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 that's right. Yeah. No, Ronnie, uh, we know Ronnie doesn't do much work at all, no. <laughs> but it's lucky to have you guys with us this morning. All right. Um, okay, in order to be convicted of a crime, there needs to be evidence of the crime, right? It's one of the reasons why we need CSI. And the whole CSI movie franchise, TV franchise, has become a fairly popular thing. Anybody watch CSI? CSI Miami, CSI Las Vegas, NCIS, all of those things. And you need a microscope and a, uh, uh, I don't know, someone in a funny suit and DNA stuff. And fi- You've got to find the evidence because without evidence, there's no proof of crime. So you need the CSI team to dig around and find the evidence. Here are a couple of stories of how police managed to follow the evidence to crack the crime. A thief decided that it was take your child to work day. And so he took his child with him to the pet shop. I suppose it was to be a bit of a distraction so that the child would distract the pet shop owner while the dad robbed the till. Everything went according to plan, except that when dad got home, he realized he'd left something very important behind at the pet shop. His son. Police were able to then find the son and find out where they lived and went and found the dad with the proceeds of the cash register in his home. Uh, so police just following the trail, they're following the evidence. Uh, another story is that there was a, um, a, a guy who went into the restaurant down below, downstairs, and stole the cash register and took it out of the shop and then carried it back up 50 meters, whatever, however far, up to his apartment upstairs. Police were able to track him down by following the unspooled cash receipt till roll that had been started down there and followed all the way up the stairs to his flat and found the man trying to break in to the, um, yeah, what a thing, eh? There's a guy at a bus stop, punched a lady, got into an argument with a lady, punched the lady, some other guy tried to get involved and stop things, he punched him and then ran away. But in running away, he dropped behind a folder and the police were able to pick up the folder, have a look at the folder and find in it his name and his address and his phone number and his anger management homework. (laughs) Another guy stole a bottle of vodka from a liquor store, but unfortunately on the way out was quite taken by the cashier, left his name and number with her as he asked her for a date. (laughs) What a fail. Somebody else stole several million pounds, like seven million pounds, from the bank that he worked for, and then left a signed IOU. <laughs> we tend to look for evidence for all sorts of things, right? We want, we want proof. We want, we want proof of payment. I mean, most of us want to see that little pop appear SMS or something from, from the bank before you hand stuff over. We want proof of COVID. Some of you want proof that COVID exists. Others just want proof that I actually have the disease. Um, We want proof against Jacob Zuma. Although I believe there's an awful lot of that. He's just ducking and diving it. Now we're looking at some of the evidence of Cyril's $4 million that went missing from Fala Fala. 
Some of us need no proof at all because we're just very good at jumping to conclusions. And some of you are so good that you even take quantum leaps to conclusions. One of the things we're going to look at today in the book of Acts is to see that there is evidence of faith and what evidence of faith looks like and, and what evidence is there that there is faith in the first place. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. I'm going to just summarize the first half and then we'll read the second half and pay more attention to the second half partly because the first half is a repeat of what we read last week. Acts chapter 11 starts with criticism. It starts with criticism. Last week, Peter had gone to the home of Cornelius, who was a, a Gentile, a Roman, and he had presented there the gospel to Gentiles. And it was a mind-blowing moment. It was a major shift in Jewish thought and thinking that actually God might be interested in saving Gentiles. Who would have thought that? I mean, that was just never even a conception for the, the Jewish people. Um, and so what happens is that it's the, chapter 11 starts with criticism from the circumcision party in Jerusalem. And just to be clear, they're not having a party while performing circumcisions. That's not what the circumcision party is. It's like a political party, all right? There are a group of, of Jewish Christians. They're not called Christians yet. Jewish believers in Jesus. But the thing is that up until now, you've had to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus. Jesus has been understood to be nothing more than the fulfillment of Jewish Old Testament prophecy, which of course he is. And the understanding was, therefore, if you want to follow Jesus, you must first become Jewish. You need to be circumcised. You need to stop eating pork. You need to not eat prawns for lunch today, for your Father's Day thing. Uh, there were all the Old Testament rituals that had to be obeyed. And so when Peter takes the gospel, this good news, to these Gentiles, the first thing that happens with the guys back in Jerusalem, they go, uh-oh, something's gone wrong here. Peter's, Peter's lost the plot, and we need to call him in. And so they do that. They bring Peter onto the carpet, and they, it tells us in verse, I think it was verse 2 or verse 3, that they criticize Peter. Some of us are very quick to criticize, aren't we? Very quick. Some of us are, are quicker to criticize than we are to examine the evidence. In reading book, I came across two examples of criticism. So not this, Laura, but the, the, the PowerPoint thing. There's a, there's a wonderful cartoon um, from Peanuts. Uh, um, and uh, Linus is sitting there and Lucy says to him, it's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. Linus says, what happens? I can feel a criticism coming on. <laughs> Some of you like that. Just by looking at your spouse. Yeah, I can see one or two of you already just going, mm. <laughs> uh, You just look at your spouse and you feel the need to just let them know. Or how about this one from Pride and Prejudice? Um, it's Bernice's favorite book just about. Remember Pride and Prejudice with Mr. Darcy? Mr. Darcy is described in the book as a man who never looks at a woman but to see a blemish. There are some people who are like that, aren't there? Who see stuff and all they can see is what's wrong. All they can see is what's broken. All they can see is let me criticize and let you know where, where you've gone wrong. We've simply formed an opinion and we're quick to hold on to our opinion and we're not always all that eager to let the evidence convince us otherwise. 
Thankfully, the guys in Jerusalem are a little bit difficult, um, or a little bit different, I should say. Peter then tells them how things unfolded, how he was on the roof in uh, in Joppa, and he had a vision, and he saw all the stuff, and God said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Now go to visit the Gentiles, because the Gentiles are waiting for a message from you. And Peter arrives to the Gentiles, and Cornelius is like, I had a vision too, please tell me what the good news of salvation is. And Peter's able to tell him about the life, death, and resurrection. Jesus and Cornelius and the crowd become believers. And in the face of all this evidence, the people in Jerusalem give up their criticism, and they praise God. And one of the things that happens here One of the effects of this is that something significant takes place in the thinking and understanding of the church in Acts chapter 10 and 11. They begin to realize that the sign or the evidence of a covenant with God doesn't have much to do with external things. So if you go back to the Old Testament... And you go back to the story of Abraham, and God appears to Abraham and says, I'm going to be your God, and you and your family will be my people. We're going to have this covenant together, and this will be the sign of the covenant. Pull out a sharp knife. Because we're going to do a circumcision here. You and every boy child in your family, and every boy child descended from now onwards, we're getting the knife out. There's going to be a circumcision. And this will be the sign of the covenant. This will be the evidence that we, you and me, are in covenant together. And for two and a half thousand years, the nation of Israel lived with us. That, every, that, that, that the sign or the evidence that anyone is in covenant with God is that the boy child has been circumcised. But now here we are in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. Gentiles get welcomed into the community of faith. And God says to the Gentiles, I will be your God and you will be my people. And there's no evidence of a shiny, sharp knife at all, anywhere. There's no need for any of them to be circumcised. And suddenly, circumcision that used to be the evidence of the covenant with God is no longer evidence of a covenant with God. Something else takes the place of circumcision. Now, what is that? What takes the place of circumcision? Thank you, Hannah. I was hoping that someone would give me the wrong answer. Some churches like to say that baptism is the external symbol of the new covenant. Some churches will say that, no, christening babies, that's the symbol of the covenant. But actually, the sign and evidence of the new covenant is the Spirit of God who is poured out on these Gentiles. And that's what Peter says to the criticizing Jewish people in Jerusalem. Hey, guess what? The Spirit of God came upon them. That's surely sign and symbol enough that the Spirit of God, the presence of the Spirit of God in them, is the sign of the new covenant. And so you and I are in covenant with God now, not because anyone took a big sharp knife to you. We're not in covenant with God because we stopped eating bacon. We're in covenant with God because of the Spirit of God in us. Now let's read. With that in the background, now let's read Acts chapter 11 from verse 19. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. 
Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman, Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Right, so you see what's happening here. It's been, I don't know, four, five, six, maybe eight years since Stephen has been martyred, since Stephen has died. The result of the persecution that comes on the church after Stephen is that people in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, scattered. So they've been sitting in Jerusalem for a year, maybe two years, kind of huddled, and now the persecution comes and they're scattered. And as they're scattered among the nations, they go and they preach about the good news. They gossip the gospel. They tell people the good news of Jesus. And it's all very exciting. And they go all over the place and they arrive in Joppa and Caesarea and all over. And they go around telling the good news to Jews. Because we're still in this mindset that the good news is for Jews. The Gentiles are still those guys who are have been designed and created by God to burn in hell forever. That's what Gentiles are for. That's their purpose. And they're Gentile dogs, and we're not going to give them good news. Why would you possibly want to give good news to a dog? No, no, we give the good news to the Jews. And so they go around the world telling all the Jews the good news about Jesus. But then there's a group of them who get something into their heads, and they go, hey, why don't we try telling the Greeks, the Gentiles, some good news as well. And I don't know if they've perhaps heard what's happened with Peter and Caesarea, or if they're doing this independent of what Peter's done, but they've just gone, we've got such good news. Maybe, just maybe, Gentiles might like to hear it too. And so they, in the city of Antioch, tell the good news to the Greeks. Now, up until now in the book of Acts, we've read about the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, it's, it implies the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And that's good news for the Jews. The Jews have lived for years looking at the Old Testament, looking at the need for those promises to be fulfilled. But it's interesting that when they tell the good news to the Greeks, they talk about the Lord Jesus. Because the Greeks have no real connection to the Old Testament at this point. They have no real interest in fulfilled promises to some random nation people group. But they do need to hear about the good news of Jesus who is Lord and Savior. And so, the good news is preached to the Greeks, and this new, strange turn of events reaches the guys in Jerusalem. Quite possibly, the same group who were critical of Peter. Gentiles hearing good news? 
Gentiles believing in Jesus? Is this even possible? We need to check this out. We need to see if this is true. And if necessary, we need to squash this because, you know, we, we need to check things out. And this might not be right. And so they send Barnabas to do some investigating and to send a report back. Elsewhere, we read that Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. And he's just the right guy to send. Um, do you want to be addressed by the sons of criticism or the son of encouragement? Barnabas is a Jewish guy, but he's from Cyprus. He has a Greek upbringing. He has a Greek heritage. And so he's the, kind of the perfect bridge to, to connect with Jewish customs and rituals and the, the Messiah of the Old Testament and these new Jewish, perhaps, believers. And to go and check and investigate what he finds there. And he arrives in Antioch, and I love the phrase, it's the phrase that we're going to focus on the rest of the time this morning. He arrives in Antioch and sees there the evidence of the grace of God. Barnabas has been to see if this is really true. Do the Gentiles, is it possible for Gentiles to really believe in Jesus? And he's looking, and he gets there, and he sees evidence of the grace of God. Now, how is Barnabas going to determine whether or not these Gentiles, these Greeks, have actually become part of God's covenant people? How is he going to figure out whether or not they have become members of this new faith? Well, a couple of years earlier, it would be a very simple thing to do. Barnabas would have invited all the gentlemen to stand and come and step around behind the curtain. And you'd ask them to, sorry if it's a bit crude, but you'd ask them to stop, drop their pants and you'd be able to tell straight away whether or not these guys are part of the covenant people of God or not. Because the external sign of the covenant is circumcision. Barnabas, thankfully, doesn't do that. Barnabas prefers to ask, what is the evidence of the grace of God on these people? It's a phrase that we've used as deacons in the past when we're trying to evaluate our church and figure out how we're doing. There's all sorts of ways that you can evaluate a church. We could, we could evaluate it based on how much money comes into the offering and how much money we have in the bank. That's one way of evaluating whether the church is doing well or not. Another way to evaluate it would be to count the number of people that pitch up on any given Sunday. And that would give us a, a, an evaluation of how well we've done or not. Today we're not doing quite so well as we did two weeks ago. Um, you, know, you could evaluate the church like that. We could evaluate the church based on how big everyone's Bible is. Because if you've got a big Bible, clearly you're a real follower of Jesus. And if you've got a little Bible, oh, I'm not so sure. Right? There's all sorts of random silly ways that we could go about trying to figure out how to know that you're in covenant with God. How you're one of God's people. And what we started to ask as deacons is, what is the evidence of the grace of God in the lives of the people? Can we see evidence of the grace of God in the lives of people? We turned ourselves into many CSI guys. We wanted to examine the evidence. And perhaps it's a good question for you to ask yourself this morning. Is there evidence of the grace of God in your life? If CSI Miami came to have a look for the evidence of grace in your life, what would they find? Would they find enough evidence to produce a conviction? <laughs> of course, the question is, what would they be looking for? 
What is an evidence of grace? And again, we could go back 10 or 15 years and 20 years in church history, and some of you will remember these days, where evidence of grace would include things like this. Ladies don't wear makeup. Or long pants. For all of you ladies this morning, this would be a sign that you have not experienced the grace of God. Um, of course, evidence of the grace of God would also include things like, thou shalt not eat brandy snaps, or brandy pudding, or trifle that's got, you know, flavoring in it. <clears throat> um, because those were the sort of things that determined whether or not you were a good Christian. It included things like evidence of grace is that you don't go to movies. And I grew up in a, fa in a, in a, in a, in a church where, where the evidence of grace was that you didn't listen to the radio. 5FM was full of evil, wicked things, and you just shouldn't and mustn't. But you know what that all turned out to actually be? It turned out to be evidence of legalism. It turned out to be evidence of burden and law. It was evidence of a burdened life and a rigid adherence to the law. People would determine or decide whether or not you were a good Christian based on how much TV you watched or whether or not you wore a tie to church. So I've just had a go at the ladies in their pants. Uh, Tom is the only good Christian man here this morning. He was the only one wearing a tie. The rest of us, hopeless, right? So when Barnabas arrives in Antioch, what do you think he was looking for? Ties? Skirts? And if we're to, evidence, to assess the evidence of grace in our church, what would be some of the things that we should be looking for right here amongst us? Let me just remind you again, point out a little something about Barnabas. That Barnabas comes along and he encourages them. We'll get to this in a moment. He encourages them. Isn't that great? Because criticism doesn't really serve to encourage much, does it? Criticism doesn't really help things at all. But pointing out grace in someone's life is a wonderful thing. And this is not to say that there's never a time when it's valuable to point out things that are wrong in a church or in an individual's life. But I, I just love the way that Barnabas deals with things. He comes along, sees evidence of the grace of God at work, and instead of critically evaluating things and saying, no, no, guys, you've, you've missed it wrong, you've got it wrong, you, 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 where's that big knife? No more bacon milkshakes for you. No, no, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't come and lay burdens on them. He comes and encourages them. He comes along and says, I see the evidence of God at work in your life. I see how you become, I don't know, increasingly generous or you're fighting against sin. I see that you're seeking to live by faith. What an encouragement to have somebody come to you and tell you those things. It's what we want to hear. I think the other thing, just, in, just before we get into what are some of the signs of grace in this church, evidence of grace in this, in this passage, um, is that, that in order to see evidence of grace, we need to begin to look at people through, this is a weird way of saying it, but I don't know how else to say it, we need to look at people through divine eyes. We need to learn to see as God sees. We need to see from God's perspective. To look at people without criticism, but to look at people in humility. And when we do that, we'll begin to see the evidences of grace all over. Here's what I kind of mean by that. Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth. And if you've, if you've been around long enough, you'll know this, that the church at Corinth was a mess. 
It was the kind of church that you did not join. It was the kind of church that you did not invite non-Christian friends to. It was the kind of church that you did not take your children to. It was the kind of church that would make you leave the town and go somewhere else. It was a bad church. It was a church where they would get drunk on Sunday mornings. That sounds like fun. It was a church that embraced immorality and celebrated immorality as, isn't this a great freedom? It was a church that was divided amongst who was the best. Um, it was a church that was based on, on proving themselves to each other. It was a church that loved to take each other as church members to court in order to sue them, to win money off them. It was a church that had, was com theologically confused and completely out of control. It was a disaster church. And Paul starts the letter by saying, I thank God for the grace that I see in you. And I'm like, what grace? There's no evidence of grace at all. There's evidence of disaster. But when we begin to see things from God's perspective, even in the most messiest situation, we begin to see and identify evidence of His grace at work. So let's not be critics like Jerusalem who jump to conclusions. Let's be Barnabas who sees evidences of grace. So here are seven evidences of grace that we find, I think, in this passage. And the first one we've already mentioned, but it's the presence of the Spirit of God. And I know that not necessarily tells us that that Barnabas finds that, but certainly Peter sees that in Cornelius' house. That there is evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God. If we want to know that you're part of God's community of faith, that you want to know that you, you are a part of His covenant family, you want to know that there is genuine grace being poured out on you and on your church, there is evidence then of the presence of the Spirit of God. Now the thing is, it's sometimes difficult to spot the evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God. For Peter, it seemed to have been quite easy in the house of Cornelius. After all, there was uh, something happened and they all spoke in tongues. And that's led some people to say that in order for you to know that the Spirit of God is in you, you too must speak in tongues. But that's not the pattern, the general pattern of the rest of the New Testament. Here's what Jesus says, and I think this is helpful. He says to, to Nicodemus, he says... Um, you can't always tell, or you can't see, actually see the Spirit, because the Spirit is insubstantial. But you can see what the Spirit does. And Jesus uses this illustration with Nicodemus. He says, you can't see the wind, but you can see the wind blowing. Well, sorry, you can't see the wind blowing either. No, that's wrong too. You can see what the wind does when it blows. You can see the trees moving in the wind. You can see the grass moving in the wind. Some of us have to flick our hair out of our eyes when the wind blows. Dean, John, um, you know. So you can see when the wind blows. Dave, you as well. Oh, there's a few of us here this morning. Um, and so, so it is with the Spirit of God. We might not be able to see the Spirit himself, but surely we can see when he is at work. And Jesus says, here are some things to look out for. There's a conviction of sin. And we become aware that we're far from God and need His grace. Paul tells us um, that we should, should look for the fruit of the Spirit. There's evidence that the Spirit is at work in you. Increased love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things should be in evidence. That would indicate the presence of the Spirit of God. Or, or an operation of the gifts 
of the Spirit, where we as individuals are using what gifts God has given us for the benefit of His kingdom. And we don't just mean spectacular gifts like speaking in tongues and dishing out words of prophecy like old Agabus does here, but using our very simple gifts of arranging flowers and being organized um, and using those gifts for the sake of God's church and God's kingdom. And evidence of grace would be the presence of the Spirit. What Barnabas sees at Antioch, the second thing that he sees is that there is, there is belief in Jesus. Right? They, they, the gospel is preached to these guys and they believe in Jesus. Verse 21, they, a, a large number of people believed. They believed the message and they turned to Jesus. There's genuine faith in him that he is Lord. It is faith in him alone. That it is not faith in personal, personal performances, which is what religion does. I'll do my best to prove myself worthy to God. And if I can generate enough good works, then surely that'll be enough. But the evidence of grace is that we go, oh, Jesus did it all. And my acceptance before God, my forgiveness before God, my favor in God's sight is based not on what I do and not on how many prayers I've prayed and not how much money I've put in the offering box. And not how loudly I've sung and how high my hands went when we sang. It's based on what Jesus and Jesus alone has done. Evidence of faith. And not only that, I should have made this two things. Oh my, did they all come up together? Oh well. No, that's not right. <laughs> I changed my sermon this morning and I changed the PowerPoint and it clearly didn't change. Oh boy, okay. Ignore that. Or you can use that if you want to, but that's not what I'm preaching from. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hasn't been the greatest of mornings. Father's Day, you know. Anyway, they believed. But not only did they believe, says verse 20, but they also turned to the Lord. And to turn to the Lord means implies repentance. There is a repentance, a changing of lifestyle. Also, we read about how they turned from idols to serve the living God. Evidence of faith, evidence of grace in Jesus... It's not just a belief in him, but a turning from sin and turning from a life of sin and turning from, uh, from our past. Third evidence of grace. Barnabas then encourages them when he arrives. He sees the grace of God. He's glad and encourages them in verse 23 to remain true to the Lord Jesus with all their hearts. I wonder if some of the guys back in Jerusalem were hoping that, that Barnabas would arrive and encourage them to obey all the rules and rituals of the Old Testament. I wonder if that's what they were hoping would happen. That they would encourage, that Barnabas would come and encourage them to stop eating bacon and stop eating bunnies and to stop shaving and to grow out the hair on the side of their head. to come along and impose some form of legalistic righteousness on these new converts. But Barnabas doesn't do any of that. He doesn't come and impose all those Old Testament regulations. He comes instead and encourages them to remain true, to remain faithful to Jesus, to love Jesus, to trust Jesus, to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus. 
And it's not to imply that these guys become followers of Jesus but do nothing about their morality, about their lifestyle, because there's lots in the New Testament that tells us about what our morality and lifestyle should look like. That God has something to say about whether or not we kill each other and whether or not we steal from each other and how we engage or how we express our sexuality with each other. But that's got something to do with morality and nothing to do with external ritual and regulation. The gospel calls us to have a, a different view on morality from the world around us, but the gospel doesn't call us to have a different view on hand washing or what food we can eat. So what Barnabas does is he comes into this group and, and encourages them to remain true. They're already being true to Jesus. He's encouraging them to carry on. The evidence of grace is that they are remaining true to Jesus. It's what I try and do week after week, sometimes well and sometimes not so well, but to encourage us all to remain true and faithful to Jesus. Our society doesn't like that. Our society likes to say, be true to yourself. Be true to your heart. You should listen to your heart. I, I, I'll tell you this, when your heart speaks to you, you should tell your heart to <laughs> shut up, right? Because the Bible tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things. You shouldn't listen to your heart. You shouldn't be true to yourself. Being true to yourself is just an excuse to indulge in all kinds of sinfulness and sinful behavior. After all, my true inner self deep down inside is a sinner corrupted by sin. Barnabas says, Straight, stay true to Jesus. Align your life to him. Align your life to his gospel because he is truth. He is reality. He will define and determine what you are. You aren't what your emotions say you are. You aren't what your desires tell you that you are. We're called to be not true to our desires and longings and wants. We're called to be true to him. He's what shapes us. And he calls us loved, and he calls us chosen, and he calls us his family, and he calls us heirs of promise, and he says that we are more than conquerors and a whole host of other things. And we need to live in that truth. Not in our broken lies of I'm not lovable, or I'm, I'm not acceptable, or, or, or allowing our society or our desires to determine what we are. Barnabas encourages them to remain true to Jesus. And evidence, third evidence, of the grace of God is that we remain true and faithful to Jesus. Number four, Barnabas calls them to be devoted to the local church. He goes and fetches Saul, right? Saul of Tarsus. And fetches him and brings him back to the city of Antioch. And what starts to happen here is that the center of the church moves from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Antioch is about to become the most significant church in the book of Acts. And it's partly because of the presence of Saul and Barnabas there. And Saul and Barnabas come, and the church then is, well, there's a commitment to the church. For a whole year, verse 26, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. It doesn't mean that they met in a church building. There were no church buildings at that time. They met in people's homes, I guess. But they gathered together as people. They shared with one another. They encouraged the church. There is no such thing as being independent of church. And evidence of grace is a commitment to the local church. A lack of commitment to the local church, an abandonment of the local church, a go sit at home and not bother with church, but say, oh, I can be a Christian all by myself, is not a sign of grace. Church attendance is not a sign of legalism 
Barnabas seems to think that being part of a church, being part of a local church and being there regularly is a sign, a key evidence of grace. Fifthly, what happens in the church is that for a year, Saul and Barnabas teach these people. There is a, a, a willingness and an eagerness and a longing to be taught. An instructing of them of what it is, what it means to stay true to Jesus. One of the evidences of grace is a desire to be taught, a desire to learn, a desire to engage with the life of the church, and a desire to to mature in our faith. Number six. There is evidence of Christ-likeness. Here's the result of what happens in Antioch. They get a new nickname. Up till now in the book of Acts, they've been called believers, followers of the way, disciples, disciples of Jesus. That's kind of been the phrases, the names that have been bandied about. Here for the first time in the town of Antioch, they get given a new nickname. They're called Christians there first. And Christian just means little Christ. And I'm guessing that what happens is that this city, and it's a big city, it's half a million people in the city, members of the city are beginning to see these believers through the town and are beginning to say there's something different about them. They resemble the guy that they keep talking about. Or maybe it's just that they keep talking about him all the time. And so they, they, they call them mini-Christs. That's what you guys are, mini-Christs. There is a Christ-likeness in this church that prompts the surrounding people to give them the nickname, you look just like Jesus. This is not a church meeting where there's a committee appointed with sausage rolls and, I don't know, cups of tea, where they sit down and decide, what are we going to call ourselves? This is the city of Antioch going, these guys look so much like Jesus, we're going to call them little Jesus. An evidence of the grace of God on display. Christ-likeness. And then finally, finally, you read the little bit where Agabus arrives and tells them that there's a famine going to come. And the response of these guys in Antioch is to take a collection. Each one gave as he was able. And they give a whole bunch of money and whatever else to Paul and Barnabas and say, please take this back to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem has been the church that has sent stuff out, and now what's happening? Jerusalem is now receiving. Jerusalem's on the receiving end. And it's Greek Christians who are sending help to the church in Jerusalem. And evidence of grace is love for one another that in this case expresses itself in generosity. So here's the, those seven evidences of grace that I picked out, pointed out. You could maybe even call them eight. I don't know. Uh, presence of the Spirit. A belief in Jesus that includes turning from our sin. Being faithful to Jesus. A devotion to the local church. An eagerness and desire to be taught. A willingness to become like Jesus. And finally, a love for one another that expresses itself in practical ways. Based on the evidence on display in your life, is there evidence of grace? Are 
some of those things at least present in your life. Based on the evidence on display, what would people call you? Would they call you little Christ? Would they call you little Chris? Would they call you mini-me? Or little Miss Muffet sitting on your tuffet doing not very much? Or little boy Blue who lost his shoe or whatever it was that he lost, I don't know. Or little Bo Peep. (laughs) Are you an image that the world around you would go, little Jesus, just like him? What does the evidence say? Where does the evidence point? We got the CSI team in and kind of went through your life. Would there be evidence of legalism? Would there be evidence of worldliness? Would there be evidence of just empty, meaningless religion? Would there be evidence of life devoted to yourself and to this world? Or would there be evidence of the grace of God on display? If Barnabas pitched up in our church, what would he see? In examining our church, would he find evidence of grace here? We find that this church is a place that embraces and celebrates faith in Jesus and the presence of the Spirit and Christ-likeness and a love for one another that expresses itself in practical ways. Or would he find a, a bunch of critical and hypocritical sinners? And so the thing this morning, right, is to get out your magnifying glasses and your microscopes and run the DNA tests and ask, where does the evidence lead? Does your DNA show a connection to Jesus? Are these seven signs, or some of them at least, visible in your life? Not only so that you can see, but that others are able to see as well. Again, that whole thing, if others were looking at the evidence in your life, would they find enough evidence to lay a conviction lay a charge. Yep, guilty as charged, this person surely is a believer. Or is the evidence just a little bit sketchy? And one last little application, I guess. Not only examine your own life, examine the church life, is there evidence of grace, but one last thing. Be like Barnabas. Be like Barnabas this week. And go and look for the evidence of the grace of God in those around you. Look at your spouse, not now, when you get home, um, and see if you can spot some evidence of God's grace there. See if you can see something. Look, look hard. Some of you might need to look very hard. <laughs> but look beyond just being critical and, and, and the willingness to criticize. Look beyond the fault finding. And look and see instead evidence of the grace of God. Be Barnabas. See through God's eyes. Live in humility. Don't look with criticism and eager to criticize and jump to conclusions. But look to see the evidence of the grace of God and encourage it where you find it. Telling you now, in your homes, you'll be much better off encouraging the little bit of evidence of grace that is there than spending years criticizing the mountains of things that need criticism for. Spend time looking for the grace instead of the criticism. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I pray that what would be evident in our church is your grace. 
that we would not be a church bound by some kind of strange legalism, expecting all these, I don't know, weird rituals to take place. May there instead be evidence of faith in you, an evidence of turning, of repentance from sin, the evidence of the presence of the Spirit in both His fruits and in His gifts. That there'd be a, a longing to be like Jesus, that we would remain faithful to Jesus. That there would be a devotion to this church, to this group of people, an eagerness to learn, a longing to love, Christ on display. Father, give us, give us eyes of grace. And instead of seeing things through critical eyes and being quick to criticize, may we, quick, may we be quick to see grace and encourage the grace that we see. And now, Lord, we pray that as we leave here today, we would go in celebration, not just of fathers, but in celebration of you our Heavenly Father, in celebration of Jesus Christ, the beloved Son, who sacrificed all for us, and in whose name we pray. Amen. You need coffee or tea because it's cold. So warm up and go and grab your biscuits.